Welcome to the International Collective of Female Cinematographers podcast, where every week we'll be talking to a different cinematographer and listening to their stories as they navigate the filmmaking world, sharing secrets and experiences to empower our community. The ICFC is a collective of professional female cinematographers from around the world who provide each other with community support and industry advocacy. We are your hosts, Amelia and Akina. Today, we are so excited to welcome Indiana Underhill. We will be discussing going to film school abroad, how to approach networking, and why she started Cinematography for Actors, an education and networking-focused platform and podcast aiming to demystify cinematography for non-cinematographers. So welcome, Indiana. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Yes, so happy to be here. Thank you for offering me the spot. Absolutely. So uh, let's just start right off. How did you start out as a filmmaker and how did you become a DP specifically? Yeah, I think this is like a fun question because I feel like you get asked it a lot throughout your career and then it always changes because you're like more and more informed as you look back. But I think one of the things that stays like core to me is that most people, I, I would think that most people who enter the industry, there's like a few key roles that they go in thinking that they're going to be. And a DP mm-hmm. often isn't one of them because it's not advertised enough in the credits to be like, what is that? And so I went in wanting to be a director. And so when I, I grew up in Canada, I went over for um, schooling in University of Edinburgh for undergrad. Did like a documentary directing program, which was very far from what I realized I wanted to do. And uh, and then I, I quickly realized what I what I really wanted was to know how to use the tools to support the technical, creative and practical of a story. Mm-hmm. So what tool causes like what effect really mm-hmm. um, less on performance, a focus on performance and more on how can I enhance that performance with the the tools I have. And so that's kind of how I wanted to be a DP and and how I got started. And then I, I bought a camera, like a DSLR, mm-hmm. 5D in that era, and just started taking photos working for a lifestyle and like client, custom client content, content I think it was called, with Flash Stock in Toronto. And so I went to over 30 countries shooting different briefs for like Mercedes or Corona or Fairmont all on my own. And then I would upload it all. So I was allowed to really experiment with exposure and composition and all of that in order to kind of adapt then into filmmaking. And that's kind of how it got started. Uh, we don't hear a lot of American DPs uh, studying abroad for films yeah. in particular. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that experience and how that informs your cinematography, maybe? Yeah, I mean, so I'm from Canada originally. I'm very lucky to be in L.A. now um, mm-hmm. with a visa. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard for Canadians to get a visa. But yeah, I, I went overseas because I never really felt personally, like outside of film, I never felt at home in Mm -hmm. Canada. It felt like I had done 17 years of it. And I was kind of ready for the next part of the journey. Mm -hmm. I applied to over 50 universities all around the world from the States to Abu Dhabi to um, Australia. And I applied to two film programs. And once I got into those film programs, I, I made the decision to just kind of go like, yeah, let's do it. And so I just wanted to do something new. And it happened to be within film that I would be allowed to do that. And that's kind of just how it happened to explore borders and, you know, going past that a little, I think was the core meaning behind it. Wait, so I'm yeah. saying, what did you study in college? Yeah, so I did a, it was a BFA in filmmaking, film production, but specifically- You already knew, kind of, if you wanted to go in that direction. 
Yeah, I applied to Australia for business. I applied to London for Italian and Spanish. I applied to Abu Dhabi for general arts. I applied to McPhail for science. Um, But I I was like, I don't want to close any doors. I'm terrified of closing doors. And and then when I got in for film, I was like, wait, this feels right. I grew up going Mm -hmm. to the movies twice a week with my father. And they're not in film, my parents. But um, it was like very much like, a is this a real career kind of thing? Like, how do I get my Mm -hmm. name in those credits? Like, that seems so daunting. So when it felt like there was access to that part of the world, which was like film school, um, I, I just like kind of like went. Yeah, went for it. Do you think if you didn't get in, you, you'd be a doctor or something right now? I was, honestly, I grew up wanting to be a marine biologist because I was obsessed with The Little Mermaid and Tomb Raider. And there's like a lot of great like scenes and stuff for archaeology mm-hmm. and marine biology. Like, it's just like a great stuff. But yeah, I'd probably be in something really random or like Spanish and Italian. I was very much leaning towards because I love languages and I used to be like semi-conversationally fluent in Spanish and I wanted to like mm-hmm. go into that. Yeah. That's so who cool. knows? Who knows? <laughs> for letting me in. I mean, the, the quick story for it is I um the reason I chose Edinburgh like as that school and that program was and this is like really, really funny. Uh I was in film class in high school it's one of the arts programs mm-hmm. and they were like you're gonna be you're gonna be a dp and i said no i want to be a director and they said well you put dp down for every role i don't know why you want to be a director now and i called panavision hollywood and i no not hollywood panavision um toronto and i i said um hi um i want to see a, a camera and they were like, what? And I'm like, for my thesis film in high school, I just want to look at cameras. And they were like, we don't kind of, we don't really do that. And mm-hmm. it's because I was obsessed with Terrence Malick's Tree of Life. And I thought that if you had that camera, you would be as good as that film. And, you know, I was 16. I, I know better now. But um, <laughs> I, I called them being like, I read on like, it was like Reddit. And they were like, um, Terrence Malick's Tree of Life was shot on a red scarlet or one and i was like okay great and it's not it's shot on film but i was like great awesome so that's why i called panavish i said can i see cameras like do you have the red camera can i look at it and they were like we don't really do that and i googled film schools that have a red camera and then i ended up all the way in scotland for the red (laughs) for the red camera um and then shot on it a few times and realized that life is not as great as and easy as it seems um but yeah so scotland was for the red camera um you've also worked for uh hawk right Mm-hmm. Uh, can you yeah. talk a little bit about that experience and why you decided to go into working for a lens manufacturer? Yeah. Um, so while I was in Scotland, and this is why, like, I think every single choice you make is like, mm-hmm. maybe not the best at the time, but it, and you look back on it and you're like, oh, that's why I did that. Like Edinburgh mm-hmm. wasn't the right decision for documentary filmmaking as a director. Um, I mean, I learned use of space in the frame, but besides that, I'm like, get me out of here. But one of the teachers, when I decided I wanted to be a DP, he was like a guest lecturer, a working DP. And he goes, you're not going to learn that here. We can't teach you that. You need to go to Poland for camera image. And so I spent all of my student money. I was living on like less than five pounds a day, just like, and I was like, okay, I'm going to like get it all together. I got a pass. It's super cheap for students. And I went there. And one of the first booths I went to was the Hawk booth. And I met Mm -hmm. Alexander Schwartz and um, Jim Boucher, who Mm -hmm. I still work with to this day um, for a company called Camera One. Mm -hmm. But they were like, I like went up and I was like too afraid to touch these lenses because they keep them on like little pedestals at the the festival. And so it's like with lights and you're like, oh my God. (laughs) 
and I be- I befriended them. And then when it came to doing co-ops, I wanted to find a way of getting out of Scotland, but still getting my degree. And I, I emailed them and I said, like, it was so great to meet you at Camry Maj. Can I work with you? Like, can I be an intern if I come to Germany? And so I ended up going to Bavaria um, a few months later and did my first stint with them. I've done several years with them on and off in between shoots and like mm-hmm. um, normally around Camry Maj. And I went everywhere from like starting as a prep tech and cleaning like a, an Alexa sensor on my first day, which was terrifying because you like take like Benzen, I think, and then you like go down. And I was like, why is anyone trusting me with this? To <laughs> marketing with them and then learning how to build lenses. So I helped, I helped, I didn't like lead or anything, but I helped build the first set of Hawk 65 lenses in the basement there, which was wow. really beautiful because you get to really ask the questions that you normally don't get to to think about even mm-hmm. like how what would happen if you took out this glass element what happened if you uncoat the front of this lens like mm-hmm. you know what if you put I mean at one point Heiko Bethke who's not there anymore he designed the Bethke filters the Bethke effect mm-hmm. which are some yeah. of the greatest filters ever there's only a few sets in the world if you have the chance to test them you should you can do it at Hawk LA he he once took like a strand of my hair and he he opened a uh, middle of a vintage 74 two times lens and he taped my hair into the middle of the lens and then put it back together and then shot uh, light through it to see what it, what would happen to the flare. And just so you know, it doesn't matter what we've realized through this test that it doesn't matter what color your hair is. It will be um, it'll be like a rainbow, um, which is amazing. So it's really cool. Like those were the kind of things that I started to begin to like pick apart by working mm-hmm. for a company like Hawk and they're very small and intimate and, and doing some cool stuff. So that's kind of how that worked. And I worked in Berlin as well with them. Yeah. Different stuff, but fun stuff. They're my, they're my OG film family. Looking back on all of this, what's the piece of advice um, you wish you had when you were starting out? Yeah, I, it's interesting. I also think this is something that evolves over time. It's probably at the time. It's really interesting. I think honestly, and I, I think I did do these things, but I think it's important for people to hear that like, that maybe there's two. There's one, which is network and meet people and ask questions and have form mm-hmm. relationships. Because I think some of the relationships I made that early on, I was like 17, 18, are still with me a decade later. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're stronger than ever. And so I think like be kind and, and ask questions and get to know people for who they are in addition to what they do. And then I think something that's come over time that I wish maybe I had at the beginning was understanding your boundaries, which I talk a lot about now. Mm-hmm. Um, so the boundaries of work. So like, what am I willing to do with someone? Like, am I willing to, you know, when you look at pay, is it like, what's my bottom? Or like, is it is it like, you should never, when someone says to you, like starting out, this happens a lot, I think is like, when someone says to you, like, we don't have money on this one, but the next one we will. You're mm-hmm. never going to be brought on. Rarely are you going to be brought on for the next one because <laughs> yeah. they'll always go with the person that they couldn't afford, you know, because they're associated with this worth that now someone can purchase. So it's like, I think understanding your boundaries of like, do I trust this person? Also, what are the kinds of people I want to work with? Mm-hmm. At the beginning, it's hard because you want to take as much work as possible to build your portfolio. But as you begin to build your portfolio, I think starting to like set boundaries for yourself around like, the professional is a really important piece of like working in film. Speaking of networking, I gotta ask, are you, have you always been gregarious? Like, are you an extrovert? Like, like you're, you seem very, you know, obviously like you're charming in that way, but like also talking or listening to you talk about how you've just like made the contacts and the network <laughs> you have. Like, I don't think yeah. that's something that everyone can comfortably do, you know? Yeah. Like, you have advice for people who 
don't have that in their personality who cannot yeah. say like I gotta go to you know some event and be and say okay I'm gonna meet everybody and get yeah. a job yeah it's there's <laughs> so much to talk about like I want to do a whole master class on networking because it's such a dirty word for a lot of people because they hear it and they just mm-hmm. go like absolutely not and I think it's one of the most beautiful things on earth it's like connectivity at the end of the day like forming a community mm-hmm. to start it off I think like just a fun cute thing that keeps me going is two of your other members, Veronica uh, Bauza and um, Sarah Pierpont. So they are in my AFI year. And I, they were at a lot of networking events that I was at during mm-hmm. AFI, but I very much like made an effort to be like, I'm going to every networking event. I don't care how busy I am. I need to go. I need to go. I got permission to go to Camry Maj. No one else got that. Like I was very mm-hmm. like adamant. And they, I ran into them like at an Adobe party for Frame.io uh, six months ago, seven months ago. Mm-hmm. And they were like, you know, we have to tell you something. Sarah and I are always texting about like how we don't want to go to something. And then one of us will just go, what would Indiana do? Would Indiana go? <laughs> Indiana would probably go. Indiana's totally going to be there. She, she, she would go. And I'm like, you're joking, right? And they're like, no, we legitimately will say like Indiana would go. And then they go. And I'm like, I can die happy now. Like just knowing that someone would use me as like a marker for like, she would go I would I should go too. like I love that so mm-hmm. I mean I think it's just the thing I always tell people about networking events if it seems scary and a way of networking is like the majority of people have shown up to that event or trade show because they're ready to meet other people already so mm-hmm. it's you they are accessible to you like it's not like you're at a, a restaurant sitting in different tables it's like you've all gone to be open-minded about what you can learn who you can meet and like how you can kind of expand on everything. So I think that's like a really comforting thought. I, I host a lot of community building events through a company that I founded with my um, business partner, Haley Royal, who's an actor called Cinematography for Actors um, that I know, um, Emmy, you've been to. So that, I always tell people that as well because actors don't have access to networking events. And so I always tell them like, it's it's accessible like this is a a market of people that you can totally talk to and they showed up and you showed up and that's kind of how to get started i mean beyond that if you want like the nitty-gritty of networking it's like go go immediately to the food table or drinks and talk to someone about if they've had that before so like if someone's or, or like what are they getting and it's like it's like oh did you like oh are you getting like a i love gym martinis right now so i'm like oh, is that like a gin martini? And they're like, or you say like, oh, I'm going to get like a gin martini and see if they respond. And if they don't respond, don't talk to them. They're annoying. But normally people will respond. If you're at a food table, I learned this in like an etiquette class when I was like 15. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I was at an etiquette class, but I was. And they, one of the like teachers at the etiquette class said like, always keep one hand open, but go to the food table and talk about food selection and just like, oh, like whatever they grab, be like, oh, that looks good. Like, have you had it? Did you try it yet? Is it good? And then also, if you're holding like a champagne glass or a wine glass, put the napkin under the or the little plate under the champagne glass. So you can always like rub your hands easily before you like meet someone and you can keep your food there at the same time. So it's like little things like that allow you to be Mm. open. I mean, it's also body language of just like if you're in a group of people, if I'm talking to Veronica and Sarah, but we are open to meeting new people, make sure your body language is open and you're not in a closed circle. I mean, it's things like that where it's Mm. you can and you can read that, too. So if you're at a trade show and it's like, you think people are in an important meeting is someone facing outward because that means they're looking to get out of that conversation and you could be an it so it's like i think it's mm. a mix of understanding that everyone is here for the same goal and knowing 
body language enough to be like, that person looks like they would be down to talk because they're not completely closed off. And and networking is such a fun game when you approach it that way, I think. That's great insight. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun. I literally like, I love meeting people. I mean, I run out of steam more often now after COVID because I feel like I'm used to staying inside. Before COVID, I feel like I was like an animal, just like able to go to everything nonstop. It definitely takes it more out of me. And I feel like a lot of people feel the same. But just I think keeping that stuff in mind is like a really easy way to get started and be open to learn and like wanting to ask questions. I think people want to educate and pass down knowledge in this industry. Need to hire an underwater cinematographer in the Caribbean or a drill certified cinematographer in South America? How about a Mandarin speaking cinematographer that can work in Europe? We gotcha. Our comprehensive database of over 300 members is searchable by location, language, specialties, affiliations, and genre slash categories. Visit our site now and find your next superstar collaborator at icfcfilm.com. And, you know, speaking about cinematography for actors, what is that? Can you talk yeah. about the company you founded? Yeah, I can. I love it so much. So I wrapped my first feature last year. It was a horror in the middle of the woods in Ithaca, upstate New York. One of the actors is like a newer actor, fantastic actor, but newer actor. And we were doing like a big scene and the director and her had already spoken and like she was really in it. I had all of these beautiful light bridge reflectors underneath her. The camera was shooting up over like this body at her. And so we couldn't really get our camera in more without hitting the actor and talent. And they kind of needed that connection. And so she was in her head and I really wanted to just like, I really wanted to tell her to move her eyeline up just a little bit. Like if she had moved it up just a little bit, there would be this beautiful eyelight, like this just moment of connection. You could see the tears welling, like, but it was, a, but her eyeline was a little too low. And because she was so in the zone and we were ready to go, I couldn't give that note. And forever, your your footage just will not have that highlight. And when I got back to LA, I went roller skating with Haley, who's now my business partner and one of my best friends. And I told her the story and she goes, yeah, well, actors would never know to do that. And I said, hmm? and she goes, yeah, I mean, we're not taught that. And I said, you spend over a thousand dollars on classes. The average that an actor spends a month is like 500 to over a thousand dollars on acting classes a month, like wow. insane. Yeah. And they don't teach the technical anywhere. Nowhere. Like no one teaches lens swaps. No one teaches eye light. No one teaches eye line. I mean, meet your mark, but that's like it. Like, I mean, no one teaches how to have a conversation with an operator. Like wh- who sets the pace, who leads, who falls, like all what, what even terms like coverage and angles, like no one teaches this. And I, um, when I was earlier, when I mentioned being a photographer, I also taught to make money. I taught on Skillshare as like one of their first teachers as a photographer. So I still have like 10 photography class online. So I immediately was like, let's teach it. Like, let's put it online. It'll be passive income for us. That's always fun. And then that went from like being passive income to like a full business where we were like, wait, there's definitely an audience here that can Mm -hmm. learn this because, and the thing I always say about cinematography for actors is like, yes, we teach the technical side of performance. So how to make an actor more confident when they get onto set. Because if you think about inexperienced actors, seasoned actors have been on set for years and they understand all of this just by doing, just like we have, you know? Mm-hmm. But newer actors who are more inexperienced, they might be just as good or even better than a seasoned actor, but you can't fully realize that unless you have the technical knowledge of how to apply it. Mm-hmm. Like they could be a fantastic actor, but if they're constantly moving around on a hundred mil lens, you can't capture any of that. If they like 
are constantly going in and out of focus, it can look messy and you're not actually able to catch that. And I think it's like we want to make a more confident actor and give them the advantages so that when they get on the set, they're confident. And we're and as per producers, directors and DPs, we're getting more time to work on performance and the creative rather than redoing a take for a technical misstep. So that's what cinematography for actors is. We do a class a month. That's a technical mm-hmm. class. Um, so that could be how uh, different lenses affect uh performance or like what it looks like if you're on a 20 versus an 85 from this distance um eye line eye light operator all the stuff i mentioned we do um weekly podcasts cinematography for actors which is the transparency with the industry of understanding the breakdown mm-hmm. of roles and how different positions work with actors mm-hmm. and then we also do community building events which you've been to which are in partnership with different vendors around los angeles and now we just came back from doing one in london with cbp so we've done zeiss cook evidence rentals and we're pairing in educational components beforehand so actors can lab and be in front of a crew with directors that wrote stuff and dps that are mentors and and we're finding that there's like really brilliant and beautiful follow-up after so actors are now being used for lens tests so they can kind of get like real world experience of like understanding what different lens characteristics are like Mm -hmm. have that footage with them um we're seeing like people meet up for coffees um people shooting specs together so we're seeing that network and community grow while education is kind of at the core of it all, which is great. Wow. Yeah. Really is. <laughs> <laughs> what has been the response from the acting community to this and from the cinematography community as well? Like what, what has been the response? Yeah, it's been fantastic from every level imaginable, which I sounds like annoying, right? That I say that, but it's, it's great. It's like, actors i think there are definitely some haters and i don't get them Haley does because i'm like bad cop in her dynamic so people Mm -hmm. are terrified of me sometimes um (laughs) if i'm in like work mode and then Haley's like very peppy and like the actor like i'm the dp side she's the actor side and so she gets a lot of those and then i hear about them after Mm -hmm. but i mean every i'd say like 98 percent of people are stoked that this exists like actors imagine growing up in our side of the industry as dps and crew and directors and producers without having a supportive community around you no vendors no trade shows no film festivals no manufacturers no rental houses like none none of it Mm -hmm. it's like we would be so isolated and alone would we want to work in this industry and that's what it's like for actors right now in la if you're a new actor in la you're mostly alone you only are with other actors that you're either meeting through acting classes or you're self-taping at home or you're like meeting people at your job which might not even be related to film so it's like there's no expanding of that community, which inherently we are we love so much and like kind of get opportunities from. And so we're enabling a whole new group of people in L.A. to feel to feel belonging, um, mm-hmm. which then I hope will eventually translate to when we're on set. And also DPs. And I don't know about you guys, but DPs most of the time don't know that actors don't know this stuff like we don't yeah. know that they're not taught this stuff. We're not, that's not like something we're aware of. We just think like, why do they keep missing the fucking mark? Like, but like, why do they, you know, or like, or like what, what's going on? Like, why, why, why is there eyeline over there? It makes us like, why is, why are they moving back and forth when they're sit, sitting? Why aren't they telegraphing for me when they get up out of the chair with my operator so that the, my or office can follow light. them? That's yeah, my exactly. favorite. Fine light is a big one. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. a big one for And me. it's just like, or, or I light even like, 
And, yeah. and for us, we're like, what's going on? Like, why can't this just happen? You know, and for for them, they don't know that we need that from them. And because of the relationship on set and the hierarchy, obviously, a lot of the time we can't communicate that to them. It either goes through our director yeah. um, and the director chooses whether that note is given. But most directors believe that I'd say maybe not most, but a lot of directors believe that it can be dangerous giving an actor too much because then they don't focus on performance. Mm-hmm. And what right. I tell actors mm-hmm. and directors that are worried about that. Mm-hmm. is that what we're trying to do is teach it before they get on the set, just like an acting methodology, so that it's second mm-hmm. nature and it's not overwhelming anymore. So when you are given a technical note on set as an actor, you don't have to overthink it and be like, why? What's the context? Why are they asking me to move my fork slower as I'm on this lens in like in the wide? I did it this speed. Like It's not going to cut together. Instead, they have the context so you can give those notes and it's not overwhelming. You know, So the, the reception has been kind of amazing. Let's keep it going. How in-depth do you get with um, terms of like eyeline and everything? Because like so much of that has to do with editing too, right? It's like some actors don't understand why you can look left or enter frame left to right, right to left, right? And like, do you explain all that stuff too? Yeah. So on our platform on cinematographyforactors.com, that's where all of our like big classes are held. And then we have like a YouTube channel, which is like more before you get on the set. But for eyeline, like in our eyeline class, I mean, we talk about the varying degrees of where the camera is, you know, and it's like a lot of it is like the 180 degree rule too. And then it's also the proximity to the lens. So you, you kind of, we, what we do is we teach theory and we do a Q and A and then we do mm-hmm. practical exercises, which we've shot luckily at Hawk in um, Jefferson park because they have a beautiful studio area and they have cameras and everything. So we actually walk through on, on a camera, what eyeline looks like as you look around the lens and also what it looks like when you're crossing that line, if your eyeline's incorrect, or also talking to a director why they would ask you to maybe play or the dp why they would ask you to place your eyeline closer to the lens versus further something yeah yeah i mean the the thing that's really important is like not to overwhelm them with the technical so keep it Mm -hmm. legitimate so keep it like within acting so i'm never Mm going to teach an actor in a in my lens class with Haley like why this lens would be chosen over this lens like i'm not trying to teach them like too much about like a Baltar versus like a Zeiss, like, <laughs> yeah, like, Supreme, yeah. like whatever, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not teaching about, I will, I will mention that maybe there's softness inherently around the, the edges of things, but I won't say like, this is how we evaluate lenses. What I teach is like, this is a 17, this is a 32, this is a 50, this is an 85, stuff that's really easy for us, mm-hmm. but for them is a whole new language. So like, mm-hmm. and also, how do you estimate the size of your frame? If you're nervous and you don't know your crew, how do you estimate the size of your frame based off of what lens was called? And uh, well, one of the things we do mm-hmm. is we teach them the camera assistant rule of um, if you're on a 50, you're five feet away with the slate and that fills the frame. Yeah. So we kind of try and teach little things like that. So as they walk into set and they buzz by camera, if they want to get a glance up and they're like, oh, we're on an 85, they probably can inherently know where they're at. And also what are the rules around it? So like we talked a little bit about depth of field and just like on an 85, how that varies versus a 20 and why it's important to maybe like lock off your movement a little. And like mm-hmm. we did a steady cam course where we talked about what that would look like on longer lenses versus shorter and who leads and follows. So it's all relevant to acting. I don't teach anything that would be taken for a DP's education unless you're like a new filmmaker. You know what I mean? That's really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, you, you talk about community a lot. Yes, um, I do. <laughs> uh, why... Was I mean, like, as EPs, we can, as you mentioned, become very isolated in our jobs sometimes. Why is community important to you? 
Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the only reason I'm in film at this point, because when you think about set, you're working, it's people say like film, and I agree with this, film is the most collaborative form of art, Mm -hmm. because you have every single art form represented on a set, from like prosthetics, to makeup, to costume, to production design, performance, uh, lighting, you know, the camera choices, like, it's all represented. And what that means is that the different roles are represented, which is different people, which is inherently for me a community. And the reason I talk about establishing boundaries is because the longer you go in this industry is like the more precise and specific you are about the types of people you hopefully want to work with. And those are positive Mm -hmm. people who know what they're doing and want to grow with you. And also like you want to expand them, you know? And so I think community is so important because without it, we're working long hours with people we don't like. We're going to trade shows to learn about a lot of like technical stuff that like passion goes a long way in this industry. The passion you talk about your job, the passion people have for new products, the passion they have for each other. Like, I think that inherently ties into likability with the people that you're around. Um, and, and the way you do that is by having a supportive community that wants to like expand you, you know? And so it's, it's, it's like vital for me, I think, in order to, to do anything. Yeah. I mean, I think you're the perfect person to ask this. Um, okay. I have a very, I'm curious, um, just because I've been looking into it recently, since you're in kind of the, you're kind of technical also. Yeah. Um, what do you think the future of cinematography looks like with, in conjunction with AI? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question because AI is so broad. It means so many things. Like yeah. from a from a mm-hmm. consumer perspective, people just keep talking about ChatGPT and MidJourney. Right. I mean, Over right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so it's like, I think it's interesting because I love what it enables. If you're looking from a consumer perspective, like of the general audience that isn't in the tech world, it's interesting because you look at Midjourney and you go, oh, that enables me to not remember the kind of shot or where I saw it from and hopefully have enough language where I can communicate that for previous. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's cool. Like, I've had so many times where I've been like, I exactly see what it is, but I can't draw for shit. I can't paint and I can't remember what name of the film it was. You know what I mean? Or where that was from or what film it was, you know? So that is great because from like a pre-production standpoint, it's fantastic. Um, If you can learn that tool, but then again, it's like another tool. If you're talking about from, yeah, virtual production, um, I mean, it's like one of the most, I think for myself right now, it's one of the most daunting and terrifying things, even though I've been through a lot of seminars in it and I've like, been um roscoe and fuse effects came out with like their their virtual production their backdrops and adding Mm -hmm. fog and like rain and stuff that i did like a little talk on when they did their demo and i just like i love it i haven't worked with it yet so i'm like a little nervous about it but i Mm -hmm. think like everything if you surround yourself with people who understand what they're doing you can just benefit i think i would want to see it from like it enables you to do stuff but with virtual with ai in general i think there's like a lot of stuff that we just have to keep on top of because we are one of the most technical positions on set heads of like HODs. I think we just need to like everything else. Like when a new lens set comes out and the director suddenly is like this, this was used on the Mandalorian. Like we should test this for our project. And you're like another one, another lens set. I think it's like, it's just having to like (laughs) educate ourselves on all of the possibilities of what AI could be for DPs and just be up Mm -hmm. to snuff enough on it that we can answer questions, but still hire the technical people under us to really facilitate. Like, I don't believe, I'm technical, 
but I don't think I need to know everything on everything. I like to like work with people where I can like kind of just get by and understand what I want to do. Um, but one of the most important things I think with AI is just understanding the capability for us. Because if you don't know something, you're capable of doing something, you're never going to do it. So it's mm. just like understanding it enough to know like that possibility exists now for me. Like I can, you know, shoot on this, you know, I can shoot this way. I don't know, but I can shoot like this <laughs> way. And I've never, I never knew I could shoot that way before, you know, on this budget or on this, like this mind, this director has, like, I really want to work with a crazy director. They really want to do this. I think probably with AI, now that I know that that exists, I can create that with them, you know, mm-hmm. and you could probably also look at creating like decks this. and everything, but like also yeah. like sizzle reels, completely generated sizzle reels, right? For like, sure. Like yeah. how many years before we don't have to shoot anymore? <laughs> I mean, I feel like these were the same conversations happening with like the film to digital thing, like of lighting and how lighting changes. And like, yeah. obviously like DPs were still needed. Um, but I honestly think the thing that we're inherently, if there are directors and um, producers that want to do something without a DP, they can go ahead and do it. But there's always going to be room for us because at the end of the day, we're people, we're not just tools. So it's like, that's why I won't normally sign on to jobs if they're first looking for a camera in the first email they send me. Like if they're like, mm-hmm. hey, we're looking for a DPP for this thing. Do you have an Alexa 35 and a full build? And you're like, why? Yeah. yeah. Because you're using me for my technical and not my brain and what I have to offer and yeah. my choices and aesthetics. And that's the job I will always say no to. And I think it's the same when you're looking at AI. It's like, if if you want the computer, this computer to generate all of this stuff, that's a mind you're looking for. That's great. That's just like a different way of collaboration, you know? So it's like, yeah, I think, I think it's like up to you guys, whatever you want to do, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I just I had this question on my mind because, you know, did you hear yeah. that story about the ChatGPT that um, was offered $60 to make as much money and then oh, it yeah. lied? To get to, to get a task rabbit person to do the captcha for it, and then they asked, they were like, "Are you a robot now?" And then the the AI said, "No, I'm just blind. I can't see. Can you do this for me?" And I was like, "Yeah, I know. I just I read these headlines, and it's so interesting. And like, I'm on TikTok, and I'm scrolling through, and it's like how I made fifteen thousand dollars of Chat GPT, and I it's very much clickbait. I want to click on." Um, but do I know because it's going to be a hole I get sucked into and I can't handle. So I mean, I'm sucked I, into it. That's what happened yeah. to me. I got sucked into it. You know, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to Taiwan in a couple of weeks and you know, I saw this one thing that was like, type it in and see what, you know, it'll plan your itinerary for you and take you to all the cool spots. Yeah. And, I and I got sucked into this hole that I was like, I can't even get out yeah. of here. <laughs> Look, I'm not. I'm all for it if it helps me save seconds on my day. Like I'm obsessed with streamlining my life. So I have Mm -hmm. like, I'm looking at it right now. Like I have like little NFC tags everywhere where Mm -hmm. as I tap it, my laundry timer starts. As I tap it, it goes into bedtime mode and all my lights shut off. Like I'm obsessed with streamlining my life. And ChatGPT has allowed me to do that with cinematography for actors for sometimes like content writing. Like how do I write a hook for my newsletter? Like things like that. But mm-hmm. when I look at it for cinematography, I'm like, oh, I think I could probably get better at the terminology required for previs and like for like thinking out shots. Mm-hmm. But I don't see it as like a threat ever. I just see it as like, how could I streamline my life with it? And if the people I'm working with are choosing to work with AI over me, I mean, do I did I really want to work with them anyway then? You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a fair yeah. question. 
Yeah. <laughs> but it's a good question because I get it. Like, it's like, I get that, like, this is like a thing and, you know, um, and we'll see what, we'll see what happens too. I'm always really nice to my Alexa. You know, I say thank you and please. You never know what happens. I do as well. I know. Oh. I don't trust people. Emmy, if you're one of them, I apologize. I don't trust people who say like, swear at them and tell them to shut up and stuff. I'm just like, no, no, no. Yeah. I, I am firmly of the belief that the machines will rise and it won't be yeah. Alexa or Siri that come from me. It will be the printer for my first yeah. job. Because yeah. I, I did swear at it a little bit too much. So yeah, I bet. Yeah, I know. I get that. I get that. Luckily, it'll probably like be pretty either. slow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see. I mean, what I really like the companies are doing right now coming out of COVID is that they're really pushing education more than flashy marketing. So like mm-hmm. the way that they're getting people involved more than ever is to bring them in for demos and do one-on-ones or yeah. at trade shows have panels. And like you're able to learn a lot more by just like looking online than you ever were before because content is educational now for companies. That's how they're marketing. Whereas like when I first started, it was just like, here's this new set of lenses. Don't they look good? You know what I mean? But you wouldn't, you would have to go in and like do everything yourself, you know, from then on. Need to hire a cinematographer? No. Wait, what? And you're still listening to us? Oh, you're being supportive. We really appreciate that. We really do. What's that? How can you support us even if you can't hire us? Well, you can tell people who are looking for IDP to take a gander at our extensive 300 plus member database. Or you can always help us out with donations. If you want to help us out with, um, you know, monetary support, you can go to icfcfilm.com friends to donate. We're an all volunteer run group, so we rely on donations to keep the lights on. Not the literal lights we use, though. Production foots the bill on those. Although, if someone wants to send us a 10K with power for our next project, we won't say no to that either. Pivoting a little bit towards your work, I know you've sure. done an, a little bit of everything. Just uh, putting it out there in, into the universe, right? Yeah, I love like, that. If uh, if you could shoot anything, anything at all, like yeah. blank slate, what would it be and why? Can I time travel? You can time travel. I mean, yeah. Lord of the Rings. You can time travel. <laughs> <laughs> Lord of the Rings. I want to shoot all of Lord of the Rings. But yeah, no. What would I shoot? It's always the question. It's like, so I used to travel full time and I predominantly lived in the Middle East during that time. Mm-hmm. And I would love to shoot. I'm a big, I say this a lot. Like, I think it's, it used to even be on my website of just like in my bio. It's like, I love telling the stories of those rarely seen on screen. And a lot of that is the Middle East right now. Like there's not a lot of those stories. And I think location wise, I think talent wise with the actors there. And I think the stories and religion, I just like, I think there's such a ancient undercurrent to the cities and people there that hasn't been explored. And so ideally I'd love to shoot those, um, Mm -hmm. which are much like, which is narrative and Mm -hmm. features. But uh, then, you know, most of the time I'm like, oh, I want I want flashy things like I want to shoot popcorn movies like I'd love to do that. But can I mix both of them together? Maybe I like married for a few months a actor in Egypt who wants to uh, wants to create the first superhero film in Egypt. They don't have one yet. And I'm like, would this mix both of them? How do I get on a project like that? So yeah. I'm like, this would be the Middle East and telling stories of those rarely seen on screen, but also be a superhero movie. I feel like that could 
sequel. Um, so yeah, I think it's always a hybrid between between those two things. Like my quiet mind versus like the wild part of me, you know. Yeah. They come out. They both come out. Okay, so we're uh, I'm gonna go into the last question. It's a three parter. Okay, great. So it's a fun one. So what is your favorite movie? Okay. What is your comfort movie? Like the movie you'll watch when you're like really sick and have a cup of tea and just need to feel better about, you know, life. For sure. Uh, and the movie that has influenced your cinematography the most or influenced you as a cinematographer the most and why? Okay. okay. Um, so movie, favorite movie was first, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings. Just all of them. So like that whole vibe. I mean, it's a part. They're perfect films. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about it. They're just perfect films. No, no, we're not talking about The Hobbit. (laughs) No, never The Hobbit. Um, No, none of it. Uh, Lord of the Rings, fucking Fellowship, Two Towers, Return of the King. Incredible films. It ends there. That's all I needed. Just like every, if you rewatch those films, everything from story to characters and who you're rooting for to like who you identify with to the mm-hmm. movement of the camera just in like beautiful little places the amount of coverage they're getting the action sequences like the lighting mm. like it's all perfect and i love that i think it was like peter jackson brought on his dp from like one of his first features like it was it wasn't even like a dp that you would like know the name of before really you know what i mean like yeah. and i love that that is like a perfectly executed collaboration right there you know um but yeah that's like I will watch the extended editions um, a lot. It was mm-hmm. going to be my overlap for um, like your comfort movie. My yeah. comfort movies are defined not by sickness because I'll watch reality shows, but by breakups. So yeah. if I'm heartbroken and I want to get out of that feeling, I'll just um, sit and plot myself for 18 hours and go to Fellowship of the Ring and Two Towers and Return of the Game. But recently, <laughs> it's um, I like love Catch Me If You Can. I watch oh, it all the time. One. Yeah. I yeah. always like if it's on Netflix that month or if I'm flying and it's there, I can easily sink into it. Or Aaron Brockovich. Um, Just watch Aaron Brockovich again. Yeah. So good. <laughs> three days ago. <laughs> incredible. Like those movies are so good. Like just incredible. Mm-hmm. And as for what, which one I most identify with for cinematography, it used to be me just trying to emulate once again, like Tree of Life and um the new world and uh to the wonder and um badlands and thin red line like all of terrence malick's stuff mm-hmm. um, because i was just like exploring and i think he's a really beautiful filmmaker to explore with especially when you read about his background of philosophy and teaching philosophy at like harvard and mit and then being in the first class at afi because you can root every single choice he's made in his films to a philosophical principle which is like really interesting when you look at how as filmmakers as dps everything needs to be motivated and so it teaches you really early on that every choice you make has to be motivated which makes you a better dp overall Nowadays, that's not my style. I went through a phase of 90s films where I was obsessed with long lenses and like mm-hmm. and locked off movement, like not locked off movement, but um, more like precise movement, less like no like handheld wide lenses. Nowadays, nowadays, I mean, I saw a really incredible film at TIFF that I would really love to explore that aspect of cinematography now because you go through kind of like adapting to every story. It's more mm-hmm. like what have I not done a lot of that I'm inspired mm-hmm. by now? And I think um, it's called, I think it's called Return to Dust. It's a Chinese Mm -hmm. film that I saw at TIFF when I went back this year. And it is about two, a man and a woman in their like late 40s 
who are single. She's disabled and he's just like a single farmer set in like this rural province in China. And their their families marry them off because they don't want to deal with them anymore. And instead of romantic love, it's about companionship. And they build a house off the land and they look at the elements of nature. They have absolutely no money. They're like, you know, like they're just really going through it. And it is one of the most incredible films I've seen in recent years. It does a really great job of bringing in the environment and your surroundings and the beauty of Mm -hmm. everyday life into really beautifully composed images. Mm -hmm. Um, They work a lot with ambient light. I'm a huge proponent of like the light bridge reflectors, specifically the number two. And I think just because it's like very much like natural fall off, but gives you a a great contrast and separates from the background. And I mm-hmm. think that whole movie is that for me. And and it's an incredible one that I, I don't know if it got distribution, but if it did, I feel like everyone should watch that to just like appreciate stories that are rarely told on screen in a really beautiful way. So that's kind of maybe my my new love. And uh, I lied. I have two more questions. <laughs> so Desert Island Lens, like if you were banished to a, a desert island, what is the one lens? It could be a lens set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can like style. Yeah, yeah. You get um, a camera or do you just have lenses? You just get a look camera. At them all day. You, you get a camera. You get a camera. <laughs> you mean if I if I wanted to sign an exclusivity deal with a company and could only shoot with them from now on? Um, well, is it prime zooms, anamorphic or spherical? Either anyway, it just it can only be one. Oh shit. Okay. I'm I my love of anamorphic is coming into this conversation where I stemmed from I like wanna say vintage seventy fours but it's not going to be that. It's going to be the Vantage Ones. The Vantage Ones, and I will tell you why from a technical and beauty perspective, Vantage Ones are some of the most beautiful lenses on the market. And I know that's subjective. Mm. What I mean by that is, so they open at a T1. Mm. I'm not, I, I feel like a lot of people grow out of shooting at a T1 very quickly. I shoot now between a four and five, six, unless there's a rule that calls mm-hmm. for me not to. Mm-hmm. But... If you look at like the Cook lenses, I love Cook, love the Cook family, just did an event with them, so not hating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you look at like most lenses, they open up to a 2.2 two or a 2.8. Yeah. These lenses open at a 1. So it means that when a lens is precise, it's normally when you stop down just like a like one stop or a stop and a half. And that becomes like the most precise version of that lens. So you're kind of getting consistency across your ranges, except for vintage, which is a whole separate conversation. With the Vantage 1s, take that perspective, but now your starting point is a 2.8. So it's like you're reaching consistency at a 2.8 across the set rather than a four. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're already getting, from the technical perspective, you're already inherently getting the access to that extra stop of light if you're shooting run and gun and you need that stop. And then the skin tones, and I know creamy is used a lot, but the skin tones are so fantastic and like it's not too crisp. So it's not like you're seeing pour after pour and it looks too like clean. It's mm-hmm. like there's a little bit of there's a little bit of softness, but it's nothing that you're going to look at and go that's a vintage lens. Like that kind of look like a Boltar or something. Mm-hmm. They the Ford and like Vantage is weird. They make really weird focal lengths. So it's like instead of like a 35, it's like a 32 or like instead of a uh yeah, like they have like weird, I forget what they are, but it's like weird like number differences to be interesting. But my the 40 millimeter Vantage 1 is my favorite lens of all time. And if I were to shoot a full film and I only had budget for one lens, it would be that lens too. So solo lens, the 40 mil Vantage 1, 
apps at a at a two eight four split for fun, but a five six if we're really shooting. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. love a good forty. So yeah, I, I know there's something really beautiful. I think it's because they say that the human eye. There's a debate between the thirty five and a fifty is how we. Yeah. Do- like see the world and I think a 40 is really inherently obviously between that and so perhaps that's why because we're getting the the most accuracy um and intimacy when you're close which is great yeah well and if you only have one lens it's the most practical like it is yeah Yeah. beautiful Um, but yeah that's that's a fantastic set that I think more people should test and add to their to their um their repertoire Bicini is a woman in Latina-owned boutique camera rental house based in Los Angeles. They are passionate about the nuanced design that goes into visual storytelling and as such are committed to supporting filmmakers tell their stories with the best tools available. Plus, for busy cinematographer or camera crew parents, they also offer childcare services during prep. So when you're looking for camera rentals for your next project, check out their extensive repertoire of optics and cameras at www.bcine.com or write to rentals at bcine.com for general inquiry. And uh, one more question. Um, Mm -hmm. What do you do for fun? Like uh, hobbies? A lot. lot. I make honey wine. I make mead. So I make that all the time. I love it. I test out different honeys. I'm getting a beehive with a director friend of mine next week so that we can start Mm. making our own honey as well. Mm. Like in your backyard? In his backyard. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm just like, we're splitting honey from it mm-hmm. uh, but we're setting up together and stuff because he has a great backyard port so i'm a beekeeper now um it's great um i also roller skate surf what do i do a lot of lumbering oh on do i not have any more hobbies in my life i have three three jobs right now so i'm like do i have <laughs> no uh that stuff i mean go to drive-ins i love drive-in cinemas and then and and i also foster that's the what the fuck i have uh four cats so I also um, foster and I volunteer at shelters and I volunteer tomorrow um, for Stray Cat Alliance. Mm-hmm. And they're an incredible organization that I think if you're interested in fostering and um, or cats, you should definitely get involved with them. They're a great team and we have over 150 cats. So I help with adoptions yeah. and I foster and one of them is walked in this room and then one of them is a feral underneath my thing and then my neighbor has my kittens because they would have been everywhere on the call Mm. um but that was definitely like as a filmmaker i will say like working in the arts i feel like i only truly found fulfillment in my life when i started volunteering and i don't know if that's an age thing but i think we work in something i question all the time if i'm working in the right area in life because i'm not it doesn't feel like i'm giving back enough Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like i'm doing enough to change issues that i care about and yeah. as I've gotten older, that becomes more and more of like a, like when we're working with older cats and like they pass or there's abuse on the street, like whatever it is, I'm just like, why am I not doing more there where mm-hmm. like we make a difference and film? Hopefully with film, you're changing people's lives with like even making them laugh or feeling like they can identify with that story. Hopefully that's the change we're making and we're making better people because yeah. of it. But fulfillment really came with when I started to volunteer my time and meet different people through organizations because you're sharing just like film in our community. We share like the thorough line of like film as as a base with like organizations that you care about a passion. You're also meeting people who are from different walks of life doing different jobs, but they care about the same thing as well. So there's a really big community there and you can immediately feel the difference. And so I think people should volunteer more, even as like a bonding experience for set if you're like on a feature and you're during prep 
why not talk about the shot list while you're cleaning out filter, <laughs> like or TNR, like you're mostly in the car while you're waiting for the cats to get trapped anyway, so you can neuter them and spay them. So it's like, I just think like- no one has the energy that you do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired. I, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I just like, yeah, I think I think people should volunteer more in the stuff that they're interested in order to get an idea of who they are too. Mm -hmm. Um, Because film can be so tiring, like you're saying, and so like life sucking time wise and effort wise that you come out of it being like a shell of a person being like, I have I just need to sleep. I didn't even eat properly, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So you just have to figure out what your core is outside of film, because you can't always rely on that to be fulfilling in a tough market. No, that's great advice. I, I struggle with that a lot. Yeah, uh, right. You know, I, I went to school originally. I went to law school. I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. And oh some some pivot happened and I, you know, ended up here. But I struggle with that a lot. But like, yeah. is this, you know, fulfilling in a sense? Like, am I making a change in the world? Mm-hmm. And all I can do is say, OK, I'm choosing stories that are yeah. told and neat, you know, perspectives and things like that. Yeah. But it is definitely something I, I think about a lot too. Yeah, for sure. And I think that it helps. I mean, it's on a selfish level too. I think it just, it helps that like, like curb that, you know, because you're able to explore it somewhere else outside of film. So the film becomes the play. But mm-hmm. I also think when talking about boundaries, it's like the beauty of what we have as DPs and, you know, anyone that listens to this as we're growing in this industry is like, as we grow, not only are we becoming more experienced, but we're also able to say yes more to the things that we care about in scripts. So like if mm-hmm. I want to work on projects like that, I will work on more projects like that because I have the work to to back it up, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas when you start out, you don't really have that liberty as much because you like really need to take on projects in order to build that portfolio. So it's mm-hmm. something kind of beautiful to look at when looking at a future in a film is like, I know I'm doing this right now, but I can really start to look at what, as I discover who I am through my work, I can really start to take on projects that that focus more on that. So if that's working in the Middle East on stories that are rarely told, or whether that's films about bonds between animals and people, like it doesn't matter. It's just yeah. like, I think I think that's the beauty of working in, in an art is you can begin to kind of go into your niche, you know, and find what that is, which is great. And it's a universal language, you know? It is. It's like yeah. math. I've seen I've seen foreign films that like I remember I was in Sweden once and I saw a Swedish film and anyways there was no subtitles but I understood the movie and I was crying through the whole thing you know absolutely very universal about that language and just how we do a lot of things similarly from people on the other side of the world and I think that that's something that's important to think about I mean, it is like when you think about the positions of being on set, a DP is the one that was able to communicate that to you. You know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. like the DP working with everyone else on set, obviously, was the one making those decisions with their crew so that you had that language. And so you have to think about as a DP why everything is motivated, because someone like me or you is sitting in an audience where there's no subtitles and you're watching it and you're still able to understand every single part of it because we did our job properly. And that's why it's like when people ask the question of what, you know, what's, how do you define what like the best cinematography is? I say it's like, it's everyone will say it's, it's not the most beautiful cinematography. It's the cinematography that you don't even notice because it just suits the story Mm -hmm. so well. um, And it's so inherent that there wouldn't ever be another shot for this moment, you know? Yeah. I think Um, I will say the tree of life is also really beautiful. (laughs) It is. 
<laughs> right? Is that the, like, Terrence Malick films? Like, I remember also watching To the Wonder. I know. And I remember, I just kept thinking, I can't believe I love yeah. this movie that Ben Affleck is in. It is. But absolutely <laughs> yeah. was like, this yeah. movie is I mean, beautiful, you know? But to yes. the point where it was almost distracting, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, you only remember that, the aesthetics of how beautiful the movie is. And, like, it... It added a little yeah. bit to the emotionality of it, but I think a little bit of it is, wow, that's a really beautiful sunset, you know? That's a beautiful backlight. <laughs> yeah, I think Terrence Mouth's interesting because I remember getting in an elevator after watching To the Wonder and there was like a group of women who were in their like maybe 60s, 70s who had come out of it. And I went alone to it and I was like, I think 18 or 19. And I was like, they were like, does anyone even know what that movie was about? And I said, yeah, it's about the different snapshots of of um, of love and what what different love means in different types of relationships. Mm-hmm. So like between mother and um, daughter, between having an affair with someone, love of yourself, love of your God, love with a husband, love with a lover. Like mm-hmm. it's like and they were able to capture that. But Terrence Malick's hard because you have to know he doesn't do interviews. He hasn't done an interview since the 70s about his own stuff because he wants the audience to go into it seeing it as it is because it's mostly based in philosophy but you need to have an understanding of what philosophical principles there are in order to understand what he's trying to do because if not mm. then you're like what is this because they're not it's not a linear storyline most of the time you know it's mostly like snapshot here and then a like flashback here and then like the earth is like coming like the big bang theory you know and you're like mm-hmm. Um, and then tied in with beautiful visuals, you're just like, wait, this is beautiful and I love life, but like, what's the depth here? So I had to start reading. I was obsessed with Malik, as you can tell from my conversation here, but I, I started re- reading um, a lot of Dostoevsky because I was so obsessed with his mm. choices. And as soon as I read, if you read The Brothers uh, Karamazov by Dostoevsky, which is now one of my favorite books, if you read that and then you watch Tree of Life, you'll see that they're the exact same thing. Each one of them have three sons mm. that represent ways of life, way of grace, way of way of nature, and one wrestling with it, the relationship with their father, as well as um, philosophical like ideals of duality and dichotomy. And so it's like really interesting when you start to look at it that way. But if you have no fucking context, you're watching a movie and you're going like, this is amazing, but like, what am I watching? Like, why would I, you know what I mean? You need to like sign yeah. on to some sort of idea, which is hard yeah i mean one of the things uh the first things i I teach class and one of the things the first things i tell my students is um one the image is a coded message Mm -hmm. and two if you do not assign meaning to your images your audience will yeah so true exactly and i think there's and like the more i think about that second statement it's like yes your audience will assign meaning to your images if you don't but um, you also kind of want the audience to bring their experiences and their understanding yeah. to that. Does that make sense yeah. of an yeah. experience? Exactly. And that's, I think, what he does. He does a lot. And I think I think as DPs, it's like I always ask a director in an interview when I'm like interviewing for something after reading the script. I go, is your audience smart or dumb? Mm-hmm. And if they can't answer that question, I'm like, I'm like, well, then I don't know if you know what visuals you want yet, because that's going to be something we have to work on because if your audience is smart, you tre- if you treat them as a smart audience, you're going to be te- you're going to be showing a different visual language than if you're doing you're dealing with like someone you want it to be accessible to everyone. Kind of is dumb, you know what I mean? Like it's like my mom could watch it and I could watch it. My mom hates like philosophical stuff, so 
she could watch it and I could watch it and we both get the same thing out of it. So we're giving mm-hmm. exposition away. We're we're showing every angle of something. Um, when someone's talking, we're cutting to them. But if mm-hmm. it's like a smart audience, and maybe I need to change my terms, but smart audience, it's like, it's okay, I know they probably understand that that's not who's saying that. And then that's who maybe walked in the kitchen or maybe I don't want them to know yet. You know, it's like, how much are you giving away and concealing? And if a director can't answer that, that's one of the biggest things you have to solve before diving into the visual language. And that's something I'm always asking first. Is there anything you wanted to talk about or mention that we did not touch upon? Let's see. Do I want to talk about anything else? How about women and cinematography? Your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, this is funny. So this is like on a personal and professional level, different answer. It used to be different answers Mm -hmm. because inherently we're in a male dominated industry. And if you're young in this industry as a woman, if I looked at other women as competition rather than allies. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, I and I used to have a lot more guy friends than I did female friends. And mm-hmm. I, once again, was not fulfilled through my social interactions because a big part of who I was felt like it was missing in those interactions. Mm-hmm. And I, like two years ago, got rid of every negative person in my life. So stopped all friendships that weren't serving me anymore, were not maybe that positive, that I was dragging going to lunch with those people. And I started only building friendships and working on the friendships that felt like there was a purpose there. Mm -hmm. And now I have such an incredible, for the first time in my life, group of female friends, a lot of them filmmakers. So like Ira, who's a director from AFI, um, uh, Ira Storzanko, Sydney Rabot, who's a director, Haley Royal, Steffi Garcia, they're like, and and Cece Tang, she's a writer. Like they're all so integral to how I work in my life now and rely on people that I never had before. And Mm -hmm. that's something that like, I think women in this industry need to realize that, that women most of the time support women. And that um, if you're starting in this industry, you shouldn't see it as competition, um, Mm -hmm. but more as like a type of support that isn't available anywhere else. And without that in my life right now, I don't think I would have much of a life. So I think women in film is just like one of the, I, I've kind of, I'd say like 80% of the directors I work with as well are women. It just happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of this, most of my reel are, are, are filled with women. <laughs> um, and I don't know how I fell into it, but it just seems like the natural people I get on with, I guess, mm-hmm. are female directors. And so it's, it's a really interesting part of the industry, but one that I think I keep putting more and more attention into because of how important it is to tell stories in a different way. The thing Mm -hmm. that bothers me, though, is in interviews when I get a director who I've never met before and I don't even like I got them through like a connection somehow Mm -hmm. and I'm on an interview and they're like, I really love working with with women because I feel like women just like bring something different to like the set. And I'm like, are you saying that as like a marketing ploy or are you saying that as like you're trying to tick a box somewhere or do you really mean it? Because Mm -hmm. if it's a male director saying like, I like working with women, I need to know like why specifically, like what, because sometimes it comes off in a really strange way. Um, Yeah. And, and I well, because it sounds like a tropey thing to say, you yeah. know, like yeah, it does. Like, that's the, like that's the textbook thing that you would say. It's like, oh, I like w- working with women because you guys are different on set, or blah yeah. blah blah. You know, it's just like a and weird. It's not genuine, yeah, there's, there's got to be a reason behind it. Yeah. yeah, and so it's just like a weird thing that I've noticed. Like I was on an interview on Tuesday where the guy was like, "I really, 
you know, we need to work with a female DP because I just feel like I get on better with female DPs. And I'm like, you get on better with female DPs. Let's break that down a little in a therapy session yeah. together. Like, what does that mean? That, also, that, sounds, that sounds like, oh, uh, like women are easier to manipulate yeah, in my mind. Yeah, you know, but like, if I, I had a male that. DP that might like push back a little bit and be like, no, yeah. we should do it this way. And like exactly. the women are just going to bend over and say, okay, yeah. whatever way you want it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's like, I think it's exactly... I think it's exactly like that. It's like why it's like the thing that you start to put into the equation is like, Mm -hmm. why, why did you have to say that? Like, I get that you're, I already understand you're interviewing female DP, like women DPs. Like I get that. You know what I mean? So it's like, I don't need you to say that because you're stating the obvious of like that you are looking for a female DP, like a woman DP. You know what I mean? So it's like, (laughs) I get it. Um, But yeah, it's interesting, but I just think like the more we can support ourselves and support each other, the stronger our industry can be because like we're pretty badass and we work with a lot of like badass women. And I think, yeah. um, I think some of the stories and the scripts I'm, I'm reading from women are, are kind of incredible too. And so we did an actor's lab and it was really interesting with cinematography practice and evidence. And we had a male director and a female director, both who I'm um, very close with from AFI. And they both like had um, two different scripts, but the difference in, and I think this is the case with everyone, but directing styles, the difference of directing styles and how they worked with DPs and how they worked with the actors and, and what they chose to ground their characters in was just like <laughs> such different fields. And it was so fun to watch. And I don't know if it's like a gender thing at all, but it was just like the most interesting thing to watch because honestly, like most of the time you're never going to have two directors in a room. And so when you have yeah. like, two different sides of a stage, that's when it's really cool because you can start to break down the choices and how people choose to communicate and and where they put their attention. And I think it really does change things up, which is fun. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting exercises I've done and like, um, so DWW does a boot camp and they reach out to oh, alums. Yeah. Right. And one of the, the boot camp exercises they do is a master in one. So basically uh, they have to take an, a scene from a known uh, movie and they have to turn it into a moving master. And yeah. you're there for the whole day. So you actually work on the same scene with like three or four different directors. Fun. And it's crazy how they take, and it's the same scene. Yeah. And same actors. And it's, it's really crazy how in the same space. So like, it's crazy yeah. how these, these four perspectives are so drastically different in how they want to move the camera, move around the space and perform the same exact words. Yeah, exactly. It's- That's what's so fun about our industry is there's no one right way or wrong way of doing it. You can fuck up in a million ways and you can succeed in a million ways. And it's kind of yeah. all a part of the journey. The, the biggest thing you can just ask of yourself and other people is to be kind and to be honest yeah. and transparent and authentic. And the rest of it is just kind of like fun. So um, that's cool. I love that. I love I love case studies and comparing things. So, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. We'll have to have you guys on our podcast as well, Cinematography yeah. for Actors podcast, to talk more about the ICFC and stuff because yeah, yeah, yeah. we haven't talked about that much on ours. Yeah. Incredible. I really yeah. liked the um, the Panavision event you did, the lenses. Oh yeah, yeah. That was fun. I January right? Yeah, January. January. Of, yeah. yeah, it was fun to hear guys say that. Um, women naturally can see more colors than men oh yeah 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 i heard that before that was fun that should be a weird slogan somewhere yeah i'm just like icfc we see more color 
Yeah, I mean, I, I could do that. I am head of the merch committee as well. Ooh, um, <laughs> that's so exciting. But yeah, I mean, is uh, where now? Uh, where can we find you on the so, internet on the yeah. webs? Yeah, big wild, wild, wild web. My website is indiana.ca, um, mm-hmm. I-N-D-E-A-N-A.ca, or indianaunderhill.com. And then my Instagram is I M letter M Underhill. So mm-hmm. I'm Underhill. And my cinematographypractors.com, if you're interested in learning more about that or signing up for the newsletter to come to our, we send out tickets on our newsletter. Mm-hmm. So, and they're free. Um, so if you're learning, if you want to build, you know, and expand your community um, and the people that you're around in LA or London, then you can sign up on that newsletter. We have one a month. And then our podcast is Cinematography for Actors podcast. And that's kind of like the main stuff I probably am on and around. But yeah, all good things. And if anyone has any questions about DPing there, feel free to have them DM me or if they have any, they want more networking tips as well or things like that. They can feel free need more into the dms networking tips my favorite thing in the world honestly (laughs) i'm thinking of legitimately doing like a class on cinematography for actors about networking so that people feel more comfortable coming to events as they're invited to more so that's that's in the works like many other things but yeah thank you guys so much for having me on i appreciate it taking your friday afternoon with me to chat for an hour yeah thank you so much diana you're awesome i will talk to you soon then Okay, so uh, extrovert for the first time. <laughs> I know she's so fun. Yeah, I love her. I think her networking tips were great. Well, I mean, you can see she's so like gregarious and like engaging. It's like you want to talk to her, but I can also easily see her just, you know, especially when she's younger, like just walking up to anybody and saying like, "Hey, what's this? What's this? What's this?" And those are literally the people that make it the farthest you know like yeah. are the successful because they are not afraid to ask what they want and they learn so much in doing that you know and I feel like there are a lot of friends that I have you know as women DPs that are just inherently shyer right and yeah. you have to push yourself out of that shell and like go up to people and say hey what's this what's that how can I mm-hmm. use this can I get a deal for this hey let me use this right so much of our job is not only just like having a set of technical skills and having an eye but people may Managing, but also, you know, fostering relationships with vendors and brands and, you yeah. know, and those are skill sets that you really have to work at. And clearly she has loads of that skill. <laughs> yeah, well, I think she embodies what I usually tell my students or what I would like to embody, which is like that idea of like, go and ask the worst they can say is no, because I think, I mean, yeah. The worst anyone can say is no, and you're no worse off. And I think there's a little bit of that fearlessness in there that I'm like, yeah, we should we should all do more of that. Um, I think uh, what she was talking about with her friends, you know, what would Indiana do? I think I think it's going to be my, my new mantra in my head. I'm, I'm journeying for uh, Veronica and Sarah on that for sure. Yeah, I, I'm there, too. I'm, I'm well, I don't know. A lot of it has to do with COVID, you know? It's like, yeah. give yourself a reason to not go somewhere. How easy is that nowadays, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, oh. 
<laughs> no gas in my car. And uh, no, I'm just not I'm just going to sit here and watch Netflix. That's right. a life decision. Um, yeah. Yeah. The other thing I thought was was really interesting that she was talking about. My man just went blank. Never mind. Uh, cinematography for actors. Yes. Uh, well, I went, went to one of her events. Yeah. Well, I went to one of her events for that, actually. And actually, the networking there, because it was a very, it was a networking based event. It was, it was when she, they had the, the actor workshop thing. I didn't go to that, but, um, to the networking event afterwards. And they have, a lot of things that make it easier for net, for you to network. You know, I'm I'm naturally introverted. It's taking a lot of training to myself to like really be able to like I have my own networking hacks, but like it's it's been a thing, you know, for me to feel comfortable doing that. And I think they had some activities there at the event that just were like made it really easy for me in particular to go up and like meet new people and talk to new people. They have this the equivalent of these like uh uh basically like musical chairs you know they oh uh, yeah yeah i've been to one of her events also that she also yes. set, she that she set up um it was like an icebreaker like speed yes. dating right? yes speed dating yeah. and i was like that's i mean for someone like me that's so useful because it yes. went, forces me forcing to, you <laughs> to like talk to someone but it's like forcing everyone in the room to talk to someone so like as she just say she was say, talking about like everyone there is open to talking and open to networking and they're there for that. So like, since you're already in that headspace and prime for that, it's way easier, I think. Right. So. Well, and if you take the premise in the guise of like networking off, you just like say it out loud that that's what we're all here for. You know, I feel like mm -hmm. everyone's like too cool for school sometimes, you know, yeah. it's like, I'm too cool to network. Or I'm just here with my buddies, you know? And then, I don't know. Networking is the worst. I hate networking. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that is the consensus of every episode. Yes. Networking sucks. Sucks, sucks. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think one of the hacks she she mentioned is in, uh, one of mine as well, and I think is actually, is good to like, uh, I found good to actually create more lasting relationships with people you meet, which is like, don't talk about work, which is kind of counterintuitive when you're at like a cinematography event <laughs> you know you're like you want to um, just but like just getting to know someone who they well, are I don't think it's very counterintuitive because a lot of directors that I work with what I like to do is um talk about other forms like sometimes mm -hmm. we get bogged down by saying like reference films and this film yeah. and this Sometimes it's really nice to like do something totally different just to see how they see the world. Yes. You know, because like if you go like, let's say you go to like a flea market with somebody, you know, mm -hmm. or go to a bookstore and see how they pick out books or what kind of books they like or any kind of other form of life that happens mm -hmm. right and like you can get to know somebody so much better than just saying like okay let's just endlessly spout what kind of movies we like obviously yeah. like there's a lot of that to do too right but mm -hmm. um i think it's a really good way to like get to know somebody is mm -hmm. just to do other forms not talk about work right like yeah. let's talk about filmmaking constantly like that's not 100 percent of my identity no, no. And just seeing other people as people. And, and that's, that's, some, that's weird to say, but like seeing other people as people, you know, as humans with like hobbies and interests and like a life outside of their work, like because ultimately that does inform the way they're making that project or why they're making that project. So that helps you and devise a visual language that enhances that vision as well, I feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for listening today. Please follow us on Instagram at the ICFC. You can also reach us by writing to ICFCpodcast at gmail.com. This episode was produced by Emilia Mendieta Cordova, Fabian Hausepian, Akina Vandevelde, Senda Bonet, and Barbie Lung. 